Dr. Jerry Fishkin, and welcome to my show today. Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Sophia Amargi. And uh, how we met is real interesting. Uh, my producer, Austin, uh, kind of reached out to her uh, on LinkedIn. I don't know how it all happened, but it did happen. And I never really get to communicate with a lot of folks through that because we're, we're pretty busy and we get a lot of responses. But somehow something felt right. And Sophia and I connected and uh, here we are today. I want to give a little inf background and info about Sophia because her work, oh, the other thing I want to talk about is her work is so important because it has to do with childhood trauma and uh, the many ways of resolving that. But a little bit about her background. Then I'm going to let Sophia talk a little bit her, about her own uh, life experience and what brought her here. And then we're going to get into the whole business of early life trauma, abuse, neglect, violence, and, and, and how that affects childhood and adult growth and development. Sophia is a licensed uh, marriage, family, and child therapist and a trauma specialist. She has a master's degree in transpersonal psychology uh, and is trained in EMDR and uh, is a provider and supervisor of, for MFT su uh, interns. She's spoken on trauma treatment and worked as an adjunct professor uh, in the graduate school at JFK University teaching trauma, crisis, and human sexuality. And she's developed uh, workshops um, on self and uh, the authentic life. And uh, you can see her on YouTube, and that's how I first saw Sophia watching her YouTube videos, and I knew that she and I were going to click, and I knew we were going to be able to bring a show to you that was going to be electric, dynamic, and, and really important for each of you. Uh, Sophia is a private practice in Corona Del Mar where she sees individuals, couples, and supervises MFT interns working towards their licensure. And uh, I know she's busy because uh, she works about 12 hours a day, uh, probably four hours a day more than I do. And uh, making contact with her is difficult because she is a dedicated therapist. Additionally, she consults with a variety of, uh, or for a variety of addiction recovery programs, identifying the connection, the important connection between trauma and addiction and the ways in which clients can unwind from this matrix that subsumes identity and be healed. And before any further ado, I'd like to present to you my guest today, Sophia Margi. Sophia, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. And, uh, and I look forward to a great, great uh, presentation. Now, I want you to tell me a little bit more if I missed anything here and uh, I'm sure I did, but tell me a little bit more about yourself. For, I would be happy for our to. folks. For your folks. Hi, folks. Say, say hello to our folks. Hello, folks. I'm so happy to be here. It's really a pleasure. Austin, Jerry's producer, did reach out to me just requesting a LinkedIn connection, and I never respond. I get LinkedIn connection requests quite often. I never respond. But something felt really different about this one, and so I responded. And we've been going like a house of fire. Whenever we can find the time, yeah. we are talking and communicating and right. texting and emailing, and it's been great. So I'm very happy to be here. And one of the things that happened, just as I sat down before we began recording, was I simply started to talk about my experience, how it was that I became a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. 
And what I said was that I grew up in a very lovely home, lovely household, lots of privilege. It was wonderful. And I wasn't looking for a partner. I wasn't looking for a husband. I was 24 years old. I was out with a friend and I met this guy. And I knew the minute I met this guy that I was gonna marry this guy. And how did I know? I knew because I was told my entire life by my parents who I was, things that were important to me, and what my meaning and purpose would be in the world. And so, not knowing that there was a choice, not knowing that perhaps my parents were getting it wrong, I accepted everything that they told me about myself, even as I had many feelings of anger, frustration, discomfort, and I followed in their narrative about me. So I met this man, I married this man, because I knew that I would, and I began to live a very particular lifestyle. At a certain point, what I realized was, this was not my truth. And the recognition of that was utterly stunning. I really didn't know what to do with it. And it came in bits and bits. The first way that it came was, I became hungry and I didn't understand my hunger. It was a relentless hunger, but we had money. So I could go out and spend a lot of money on stuff. So I began to acquire a lot of stuff and I was still hungry, really kind of insatiably hungry. And then what happened was, I'm a really good problem solver and I wanted to figure out what is the root of my hunger. So I took a workshop and then I took another workshop and then I started to read some books. And at the time we were living in Washington DC and there was an alternative quote, alternative bookstore called the Yes Bookstore. And I went to the Yes Bookstore and everything in there resonated with yes. And as I began my own personal growth of looking at things that maybe were not lining up, maybe were not congruent inside of me, I asked this man if he would come with me, if he would take a workshop with me, if he would go to an ashram, if he would go to Esalen, if he would go to Omega in upstate New York, and it was just far too threatening for him. And I began to understand that if I stayed in this relationship, I would never fully grow into the truth of me. And that pretty much is the net out of how I began my own journey and landed here, sitting at this desk and talking to you today. Wow, what a story. <laughs> Sophia, it, it's amazing that you not only transcended your own stuff, but you were able to not only understand, but to take that primal, that primary understanding and translate it to your work as a psychotherapist. And, and I think that's wonderful. So why don't we just jump into the work that you do and uh, you, you gave me six questions and, and for the most part we want to get our audience to understand because we do a lot of work with trauma on my show. Let's start with guilt and shame because um, uh, I think guilt and shame, there's an important difference between guilt and shame and I think people need to understand because th those terms are used it's used coterminously, and guilt and shame are absolutely not the same. Oh, they're completely different Come things. from different parts of the brain. So why don't you tell me a little bit about it? And Because you work with clients with unresolved trauma. So let's talk a bit about guilt and shame. And you well, take the camera. I would love to. Um, I would ask that we actually start, before we get into guilt and shame, I think it would be helpful if I could just outline the framework that I use in all of my work, because okay. guilt and shame is kind of the next step underneath of that. Would that be okay? Well, sure. Okay, so there's a framework that I use, and I work with, let's say, the schema, which actually means pattern, of trauma, story, belief. And this is core to everything that I do. Okay. And so the way that I understand trauma is, there are big T traumas, let's say a car accident, and you're six months old, and everybody in your family dies, you're the only survivor, Ooh. or a small T trauma. 
Uh, your mother hurts your feelings. And then there's every kind of trauma in between. So if the child is experiencing a traumatic event, then that is a trauma for the child. Nobody gets to define it for the child, but the child itself. That being said, if a traumatic event occurs, immediately the brain, as I understand it, makes a story. <gasps> what just happened to me about myself? What does it mean? What does what just happened mean to me about myself? Then we have a story. So let's use Susie. Susie's at school all day. She has her little group of friends. For some reason that day, they're really mean to her. And all day long, Susie wants to run home to mommy. Mommy, mommy, she gets home. Mommy's gonna make her feel better. Mommy is a good object. Mommy is the source of light and love and life. Mommy, mommy. And mommy says, Susie, can't you see I'm busy with your little brother? Don't bother me, go outside and play. And Susie is, ah, what just happened? What Susie doesn't know is that her little brother has been very ill all day long. And mommy's been frantic, terribly afraid that the brother was gonna get dehydrated, terribly afraid that they might have to go to the emergency room. But none of this is translated to each other. Susie doesn't know. So right away the brain goes, what just happened to me and what does it mean to me about myself? And here we go into story. Here's the story Susie begins to uh, develop. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe mommy doesn't love me. Maybe lo mommy loves my little brother more. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe if I was somehow not who and what I am, I would have gotten my needs met. So there must be something wrong with me. Here's the story. Left unhealed and untended, that story over time becomes a belief. I'm not lovable. And it tracks back to, I didn't get my needs met. Mommy loves my little brother more than me. I'm not lovable. So when I work with trauma story belief, I look at value, worth, and lovability, because that, as I understand it, is literally the wound structure of all of us, the value, worth, and lovability, which, yes. Well, no, it's, and what, what is so interesting to me is that the child doesn't have the ability or is not checking it out with the parent to disconfirm. Mm -hmm. So the, the child takes on that, that affective wound, then that belief, and that becomes who they are. Yes, and right, that's identity. Gets, and that's the identity. Yes. And though, that wound, I, I call it an affective signature because the signature is always the same for each individual. They have their, own, you, their own unique signature. In this case, her signature was her belief system yes. and the wound that she can't talk to anybody, that she has to take this on, and that she's not good enough. Yes, it's always that. I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, there must be something wrong with me. It never isn't that. That's always where this kind of schema or pattern goes. In every addict, in every individual with toxic shame that I've worked with over the years, I'm not good enough is the central theme. Mm -hmm. I'm just not good enough. Yes, there must be something wrong with me. So then kind of moving back to shame and guilt, I had a client a number of years ago uh, I, this woman was, I think she came to me when she was 15, she was a meth addict, and she had been born into a Russian family, very poor, parents not married, mom highly depressed, partnered with a, a low-level member of the Russian mob who was very violent and alcoholic. So mom, it appears, had postpartum depression. The father was gone much of the time, would come home, get drunk, and get violent. The child was very much left to her own devices. One, two, three, really depressed, sleeping, checked out mom. And when the child got hungry, the mother would tell the child to make itself a sandwich. A three-year-old cannot make itself a sandwich. Now, a six-year-old can make itself a sandwich. But the three-year-old who would be hungry with a depressed and checked out mom would try to make itself a sandwich and would make a mess. The mother then would shame, blame, and consequence, or punish the child 
for not being able to meet an expectation that was inherently unrealistic. Absolutely. And so then the child starts to feel literally ashamed of itself. Shame, as I understand it, is personal. It is in my very being a not rightness, right. an unlovability. That's toxic shame. We mm -hmm. all have shame, but the kind of shame that we carry is always shame of the other. Yes, and that's the trauma wound. And that's the trauma that's wound. That's the toxic shame trauma wound. And without it being resolved, right. you know, if you don't resolve trauma, you can't resolve shame. Toxic shame. That's right, and that has to be debriefed and it has to be expressed. Mm -hmm. So you, you often use the word the wound, and we've been using the word the wound or the wound matrix. And, mm -hmm. and what do you mean by this, and how do you explain this to your clients and use this language in your work? Well, how, how does it work? I am very big on psychoeducation, okay. so that's very, very important to me yeah. because I think that if clients understand what happened, why it happened, and how it happened, right away there's relief in that. So it doesn't change, let's say, the shame, or it doesn't heal the wound at that moment, right. but it lets them understand the actual landscape in which these events occurred, right. and how they began to develop a series of stories and beliefs. So um, I use the, the word wound, wound matrix, somewhat interchangeably with trauma. So trauma, story, belief, right. that's the wound right there. Right. And those three pieces kind of make up the wound. And I keep going like Why this. Why do you do this when the, like the this wound the is time. in here? Okay, well, this okay. is how I hold it. Okay. All right, so uh, okay. I talk about autonomic sympathetic nervous system. Absolutely. That it gets trapped. And this is, it's my visual, you know, it's like my visual aid. Well, I actually, myself. I believe that's the somatic expression that is. Uh, of the wound. Yes. Even though it's in here. In the, yeah, in it's the, held here. In the limbic system, in the in the uh, basal ganglia, as I talk about in my book and, in, and on my show, it's that wound is expressed through something in our gut. Yes. And that gut also is our primary defense mechanism. Yes, and right? our gut will tell us safety or not safety. Right. Fight, flight, or freeze. Or fold, because there are What's four. What's fold? Fold is when you just fold over and you, you collapse. Are, you collapse. Oh, got that. Yeah, you know yeah. what? Because I talk yeah. about. Do you feel like you're collapsing in? And people will say, "Yes, I'm collapsing." Right. And previously, uh, they hadn't had the language to express it. When I do my bonding uh, presentation out in the public, and also here, uh, I talk about fight, flight, freeze, and the big one now I think is fold, where you just fold over because you don't. You're going to die. It's kind of like dying. You, you want to disappear. Well, Freezing is. But the fold is, is where you just have no resource to defend or protect yourself. Yes, and I say that that's a lack of a robust egoic self. Absolutely. Not enough ego in there. So there's not enough there there to really work with. Yeah. So I forgot your question because I'm all excited about whatever it is that we're We've just about. done it. And by the way, this. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about this, this more. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about this Go ahead. More. Yes. So I talk about uh, autonomic sympathetic nervous right. system. And I right. talk about how, uh, to my way of seeing it, trauma gets sort of threaded and stuck here. Right. Okay. So as I use my body as an example when I'm talking or lecturing sure. or teaching, I imagine autonomic sympathetic nervous system here, trauma sort of threaded through. And then, of course, there is the parasympathetic connected to the vagus nerve. So when that client is stimulated by something external right. and the vagus nerve is not connected to the parasympathetic, it's right here right. that starts really being activated. So if, we're, if I'm working with a client who is holding a tremendous amount of toxic shame and trauma, right. 
then somebody says, oh, why are you wearing that today? And that is enough to stimulate and activate a traumatic response. So I talk about pattern response. And one of the things I like to talk about is how people can groove new neural patterning. Right. To literally heal, as you're healing trauma, I want to groove new neural patterning. That's in the treatment part, and we'll get to that in a okay. minute. So you say that there are common uh, childhood experiences or childhood lacks that your clients share in terms of their early development. And what, what themes or patterns are common to traumatized victims? Well, we both know that between zero and five, right. all children must have four particular things. They must have empathy, idealizing, mirroring and affective attunement. And you wow. talk about affect all the time. I talk about attunement and that, I absolutely talk about attunement okay. and empathy. Yeah, well, so without that, those are those four things, and I wanna give an example of Go one ahead. if I may. So those four things, if they are not present, if they are not happening consistently, and that's my buzzword, if it is not consistent, if it is not regular, it, if it cannot be counted on, then we have a client who these are the common things that are shared across the board, no matter what. So obviously empathy is feeling into the experience of the child and being sensitive to it, validating it when the child is expressing mm -hmm. sadness, when the child is expressing fear, supporting, validating that that is a authentic experience of the child. Right. And then stepping in to help the child manage what is an authentic experience of itself. Right. Um, let's say if we talk about mirroring, and this is very important to me, I talk about mirroring a lot. All of us as children need to be seen in our truth. What I have found so often happens is that parents in their own unhealed wounds are unable to do that. We were talking before we started the show right. about the parental projection onto children, about how parents see children through their own lens of what they need that child to be or through their own unhealed wounds. And so that being said, if the child is not accurately mirrored, then it cannot accurately see itself. So what I say to my clients is, if I have two mirrors right here, one is fragmented, fractured because I've shattered it, one is intact, and your entire life, all you've ever had the opportunity to do is to see a reflection of yourself in a shattered mirror. The same way, over and over and over again. It would be impossible right. to get an accurate read on what you really look like. And if I present to you an intact mirror, mm -hmm literally the individual would not know what to do with that. Right. It would be like the Native Americans seeing Columbus's ships and although you're seeing it, you don't know what you're seeing. So it would take a very long time. Hence, we have to groove new neurology in order to accept a deeper truth about ourselves and not remain attached to an inaccurate reflection, which is so wounding. What I found is that with an inevitable and ongoing inaccurate reflection or mirror, it makes children angry, it makes children resentful, and try as we might to try to shrug, shrug that off and get rid of that and say, no, that's not me, I'm someone else. That's not me, that's wrong. We can't do it. The parents will push and push to insist that how they see you is the truth of you. And it's really agonizing. They need to do that because that's the only truth that they have. And they can't step out of their own frame to see another frame. Hence individuation. Absolutely. Well, this is so important. This whole business of mirroring to me is, it, it, it's like unbelievable because we do get locked in our own format, our own frame. And we only have that two dimension. We can't see a third dimension at all. And as you said, if you could see it, in therapy, we try to get people to see it. We get them to role play. They, we get them to kind of step out of their own head into, into another 
kind of visualization of how they could be. Also, I look to support, where's the evidence that supports that? You know, that I supports what? The original? What, yeah, the original, the, the wounded the, the faulty, sense of self, yeah, the yeah. false or the constructed yeah, self. Yeah. I have a couple of things, if I may. Just to well, add what do you in. mean a few minutes? This is this <laughs> okay. is for this is for, this is what I'm here for, the, for? Okay. this is why we're here. If you may, of course okay. you may. Thank you. All right. Of course. I'll take I'll take your may and raise you one. I'll okay. yeah, I'll take that. Okay. And I won't raise anything. <laughs> so I said four things: affective yeah. attunement, sure. mirroring, idealizing, and empathy. So we talked about empathy, and we talked just now about mirroring. Right. So idealizing is really letting the child know that they truly are the center of the universe, <sighs> the most brilliant, the most wonderful, the most creative, the most delightful. And I have this thing that I always say, if a child is not delighted in, they cannot learn to delight in themselves. That's right. Huge tragedy and huge, huge trauma. So I have a story, which is we've all been on the playground, either with our own children or walking our dog, and we've seen that kid that falls down from the jungle gym scrapes its knee, it's really nothing, it's no big deal. But it's a four-year-old and runs to mommy, mommy, mommy. And mommy says, oh, come here, baby, I'm gonna kiss it, I'm oh, gonna make it better, do you want right. a Superman Band-Aid? Yeah. This is empathy, this is mirroring, this is affective attunement. This Absolutely is idealizing, it is. it's right there. Wow. And two, three, four minutes of that with mommy, that child is good to go, it is resourced, it feels itself. And it is authentic to its own experience. Right. I fell, I got hurt, Mommy validates my hurt, she validates me, validates my adventure on the jungle gym. I'm good, I'm right, all is correct with me and the world. And I'm okay, yeah, because same. mommy tells me I'm okay and I feel safe. Now I truly feel safe because I'm protected. Yes, resourcing and safety is everything. Connection, the good object, we'll talk about that. So at any rate, that being said, we've seen that same situation and we've seen that same child, different mom. Mommy, mommy. And the mommy says, oh, please, don't make such a big deal out of that. You're just a big baby. You're bothering me. You embarrass me. Go back out there and play. And in that moment, we have a traumatic event that sort of constellizes, there must be something wrong with me. I did not get my need met. I'm not right. Because mommy, and it's always the monolithic mommy, it's the always, giver of life, the giver of love. It's always the universal mommy, right? Mm -hmm. So I have found that children in that mother wound, when they're getting an inaccurate right. mirror and an inaccurate reflection, right. where they're not affectively attuned to, that is a person who then becomes so sliced and diced that by the time they get into therapy, what we're dealing with is not a lack of a consolidated self, we're dealing with a fragmented self. Totally, and a shadow self as well, because we don't know what the true self is and how important what you just said is because a, a child will grow up feeling unsafe, and it's generational, isn't it? Because mommy wasn't taken care of, and mommy's mommy probably wasn't taken care of, because if they were, they would project that. They would be able to empathically project that onto their own child, that sense of, I will take care of you, I will protect you. You are safe with me, which means you are safe by yourself. That is so important because Part of what I see also is these three developmental, um, if you will, trajectories that children have to sure. navigate. Mm -hmm. So Freud always talked about id, ego, and superego. Sure. So I was recently at Trader Joe's, and I saw a child about two and a half. So we all know about the terrible twos. So the reason for the terrible twos is, at that age, children are all id. 
primitive drive. I want what I want because I want it. So the child wants a lollipop and the mom says, I'm sorry, lovely, you can't have a lollipop. We're gonna have dinner soon. After dinner, you can have the lollipop. But for the two-year-old, there's no after anything. There's only the now. So the child doesn't understand this waiting or I would say tolerating frustration. So the developmental trajectory then that the child has to navigate is how to tolerate frustration. Right. In a perfect world, the mother, the good enough mother, the good object, wants to lend her healthy ego to the undeveloped ego of the child. So the child starts to have a meltdown. I want a lollipop. And the mother comes over and with touch, because it only takes 17 seconds of skin-to-skin -skin contact for the brain to produce oxytocin, which is bonding. Which we just talked about Perfect. on my show. Absolutely. So the mother comes over and says to the child with touch, I will help you. We will get through it. I will help you. Again, an affective attunement, right. attuning to the emotional presentation of the child. The child might still melt down, but it will be supported, helped, and soothed. So the trajectory there is to navigate frustration. I was at Trader Joe's and a two-year-old was having a meltdown and I saw a father, assuming a father, get down on his knees and start screaming at this child in the middle of Trader Joe's. Mm -hmm. Me being me, and my first husband told me once, he said, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, somebody's gonna punch you in the face. It's a risk I'm willing to take, because I went over and I told this man that he was abusing his child, it was a public place, and if I saw it continue, I would call the police. I have to. I can't not. Well, it's you're a mandated reporter. It's just how I'm wired. Well, you're also a mandated reporter. Well, that's true. It's abuse, Nobody it's was, abuse. I thought it was abuse. So we have the navigation through the development of id, frustration, tolerance, right. and then we have ego, that right. separate I am. Mm -hmm. I am me and I am not you. And so in that place where ego is supposed to develop, we're supposed to idealize our child. And mm -hmm. that's about three, three and a half. And we are supposed to say, you are the king of the world. You are fantastic. You are the best. That is the I am and I matter. And then when we're about four, four and a half, we're looking at navigating through super ego. How do I get along in the world? How do I play with my friends? Where a two-year-old's gonna bite a child right. who grabs its toy, right. Right. a four-year-old will not. That's because they're learning a judgment, and the superego is also about the, the policeman of the psyche that says, this is not good, this is, this is okay. We learn those behaviors. We do, and we're supposed to learn them appropriately and supportively with if loving we can, kindness. If we have good bonding and, and good parental supervision. Attachment. And good, well, good attachment, absolutely. So that kind of brings us into attachment. Well, yeah. And, and Look around you. Everyone you see shares a deep and terrible secret that no one ever talks about. It is, in fact, one of the best-kept secrets of all time, as universal and natural as the air we breathe, and just as pervasive. No one is immune to it. Look inside yourself. We listen to it instinctively, hold it closely, impetuously, and follow it without question every moment of our lives. The secret is our inner voice. The self-talk, the primal and silent, internal communication that form alongside our psyche, feeding us constant messages that control our behavior. We hear it, but we can never see or feel or detect it in any other way. If you'd like to learn more about the relationship of early life abuse, trauma, neglect, violence, and its relationship to addiction, please pick up a copy of my new book, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, available at the bookstore or online. Thank you very much.
collapsed into attachment. Well, yeah, and, and so that takes us into, so what do you mean by abandonment, betrayal wound? And Ooh. how does this impact one's adult ability to connect and bond with others? Okay, that? so that's really great. Thank you so much. You like much. that segue? Really, I think that's a great question. Well, that's a great segue. That you did. <laughs> but I'm the mouth. I like it. Thank okay, you. Good. So attachment betrayal, I mean, that is the common theme. That, right. is the, that is the transpersonal wound for all of us. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is that children will contort, contort, and contort themselves. We would say the development of the false or the constructed self right. to remain in connection to that primary attachment figure who provides them life. Without the connection, there's no life. So this is, you know, hardwired into the psyche for the organism to just survive. Absolutely it is. Okay, so when we talk about betrayal and abandonment, it could be as small a thing as you tell your mother a precious secret to you, and you make her promise to not tell anybody, and then you find out later that she's told your father. That is a huge betrayal. That is a huge abandonment of what the child always holds, of course, unconsciously, sure. but as this sacred bond. So I'm going to share with you an experience from my own You're childhood. You're sharing with all of us. And I'm going to share with you and with you and with you and with all of you yeah. an experience from my own childhood. And I use this in my lectures because for me it was a salient event. And it really impacted the relationship that I continued to develop with my mother pretty much until this day. Of course we've discussed it. Of course I understand it. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I'm still holding it to some degree on a cellular level. To as much as I have healed it, and it doesn't continue to drive my behavior. For many years, it actually did. So here's what happened to me. I was four or five years old. I was in preschool, and I was in a pageant at the preschool, like a Christmas pageant or something. Mm -hmm. And all the little girls in the class were going to be butterflies. And the moms went to the fabric store, and every child was given a color of fabric that their moms would buy and the moms mm -hmm. made a little outfit with little net wings and the girls were to run around the stage as butterflies. The color that I was given was a very dark blue at that time it was called a skipper blue and this broke my heart because I have always known myself to be a fairy child and a child of that sort of realm where I love lavender and purple, pink, green, all these soft pretty pastel rainbowy colors. Right. And that was what I understand to be my authentic truth. And I was given this color of a royal or a skipper blue. And it broke my heart. I really, I think I folded. I think I didn't have the resources wow. to effectively discuss it. But I did go to my mother. And I did say that I was unhappy with this mm -hmm. color and that I wanted to be lavender, which is still to this day my favorite color. And what my mother said to me was, out of love, out of kindness, out of caring and support, because I was never hurt or mistreated growing up other than in the ways that affect the psyche, not being clearly seen. What my mother basically said to me was, it's no big deal, deal with it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to the school. Mm -hmm. Now, I also am a mother of a young adult child. And for me, I would never in a million years have told my child to deal with it. If my child said I was unhappy, that, that that child was unhappy with the color, then I would have immediately said, well, I'm gonna get you the color that you want. The fact that my mother did not recognize, A, my truth, how important it was to me, and didn't stand up for me and say to the teacher, my daughter hates this color, I'm not gonna put her in something that she hates. Right. The fact that she said to me, deal with it, basically, was the abandonment betrayal wound of my early life. Right. Just like that. And I felt unsafe. I felt like in that moment my mother became my adversary and not my ally. I felt that she could not be trusted 
and I no longer cared to share with her things that were important or meaningful to me. So the abandonment betrayal wound can look a lot of different ways. For me, in the moment, which nobody observing this would have been able to pinpoint, it was subtle. For someone else, it might be a parent leaving a child alone in the house for a night or days on end while they're going out carousing around. It might be placing the child in an unsafe environment that puts the child's well-being at risk, that places the child in a sexual situation that the child should never be placed in. Absolutely. So the job, certainly as I understand it and as I think all children do, the birthright is to be safe, to be cared for well. To be safe is critical. So any abandonment, betrayal, wound right. has to do with the child not feeling safe. So it's to be safe physically, but it's also to be safe emotionally mm -hmm. or psychologically. That allows the child, as the child develops, to go out and test the world and try new things, knowing that they're going to be okay, that they can test the limits of life in a healthy way and know that they can come back to themselves and be okay. Well, But the I... wounded child never... Ooh ever feels that. The wounded child goes to a place where they know they're not okay, but they don't know, as you said earlier, how to get out of it. Well, I see this in my practice with adults that are struggling with intimate relationships. Right. So there we know four kinds of attachment. Right. right. We have a secure attachment. These are people I really never see in my practice unless they have a problematic child mm -hmm. because this is what happens. They feel safe. They feel like the world is safe. Right. They feel resourced to go out and test the world and test themselves in it. They feel safe bonding emotionally and committing with their full heart to another person because they were committed to with the full heart of the parent. So they don't typically come to therapy. So typically what I work with are the clients that struggle with that anxious, ambivalent attachment style and the avoidant attachment style. And then usually a disorganized attachment style yeah, doesn't uh, typically show up either. Because you know? that's what they've learned. Yeah, well, they're, you know, it's a retreated individual. They're not really stepping out much. But the, so the four kinds of attachment styles are secure, anxious, ambivalent, avoidant, right. and disorganized. And so when I am lecturing about attachment styles, which always tracks back to trauma, safety in the world, right. what we're talking about in the avoidance style is the child's vulnerability and neediness and dependence. Because children are all needy, all dependent, and we are for a really long time. And so when that neediness, that basic childhood vulnerability is used against the child, uh -huh. the child is shamed for it, the child is belittled for it, right. made fun of it, that right there is a betrayal wound. It's an abandonment of that sacred covenant to keep your child emotionally safe, physically safe, to be well cared for and feel like things are right and good in the world. And so the avoidant personality type will give the partner the best three months of their life. That other person has never had such a great relationship ever for the first three months. And then? And then the shoe drops and they start to ghost and they don't follow up and they don't return phone calls. Yeah. And certainly I work with lots of women clients right. that have lost months or even years right. trying to get back to those first three months with an avoidant partner. Yeah, I call that the honeymoon time. And then after the honeymoon, it, it, it's, it becomes chaotic. Because true intimacy Right. And of the child, the child is intimate by nature because it's right there. It's so it vulnerable. It doesn't know boundaries. It doesn't know, it anything. doesn't know anything. Yeah, so when that vulnerability is used against it, uh -huh. then true intimacy becomes the most unsafe thing for the adult. Well, it's unsafe because the child cannot even uh, be intimate with themselves. 
Yes, it's used against them. Yes. Their actual true nature of vulnerability and dependence and, is and used And what I find them. with my patients is that when they're alone, this is chaotic time because they can't be alone. They can't be relational with themselves. That's and so they're wound. constantly involved in relationships. I call it serial monogamy because they're, they can't be alone. They don't like, they fundamentally don't like themselves. Yeah, I kind of think about the borderline client when you bring that up. Well, it's totally borderline. <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it. <laughs> because that they come be into, and remember, what makes a borderline is not all, enough there there. That's not, not enough, enough there's, there's there. Not enough there there. Yeah, I, I have a borderline it. story. I think you'll appreciate it. I, I think you'll appreciate it. Thank I you. certainly appreciate Let's, it. Here's the story. Tell us. Okay, beautiful woman, beautiful clothing, everything. She's beautiful, beautiful figure, beautiful face, all of it, lovely clothing, elegant walks into a restaurant, all the men in the restaurant turn around and look at her appreciatively, and she feels her beauty. And now she feels valuable, worthy, and lovable in the world. Same woman, same beauty, same clothes, same restaurant. Nobody turns around and looks at her, and she feels utterly unbeautiful, unlovable, and unworthy, i.e., taking your cues from the external environment because right. there's not enough there there. That's the psychosocial stuff that, yeah, not enough there there. Mm -hmm. What a great story. So we've talked about trauma and all this. How does it impact and relate to a person's idea or understanding of their own identity? I want to wrap that piece up. Okay. Because I think we've been talking about it, but let's, let's put it into a, it has a, a lot to do with shame, doesn't it? It has everything to do with shame. So shame is personal. Yes, it shame is. Shame is I am shame. Not that I've made a mistake. For the healthy, egoically robust self. Well, I think we want to talk about toxic shame versus regular yes, shame yes, yes, because toxic shame, shame. Uh, shame wounds are, are 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 enduring. They stay with us. But a shame, you know, I I I've done shame once in a while. I've, uh, there was a, a time I asked a woman, uh, how uh -oh. far along is she? Uh -oh. Holy crap. And she said, well, I'm not pregnant. Yeah. But at that moment in time, I wanted to withdraw within myself and literally either explode or disappear. To me, that's, that's shame. That is normal and healthy shame. I shame myself, as I talked about in my toxic shame show, I shame myself, I want to disappear. That's not the shame we're talking about. Correct. We're talking about toxic toxic shame. That's trauma related. That I is mean, it's, trauma. It's, it's the direct result oh, of unhealed trauma. Absolutely. So toxic shame. Okay, yeah. so now we're talking about toxic shame, yeah. not to be confused with, with your regular, normal erotic shame. shame that we all experience. Right. Yes. That can subsume identity. The I, There's something wrong with me. I am wrong. Mm -hmm. I will link this to um, the unrealistic expectation that is placed on children. The child fails to meet the expectation. They're shamed for it, leaving them with a feeling of there's something wrong with me because I didn't meet this expectation. But of course, no child would meet the expectation because the expectation is the thing that's unrealistic, yes, right. not the wrongness of the child. Right. Then fast forward, if this stays in the system, right. we have an individual that is continually setting themselves up for failure mm -hmm. because they will continually place an unrealistic expectation as a measure of their value. Right. If I lose 20 pounds in five days, it'll prove that I'm lovable. If this guy who is an avoidant guy doesn't call me, or he does call me, it'll prove I'm lovable. Right. These are completely unrealistic expectations. They'll fail to meet them continually, and they'll use their failure as right concrete evidence that they themselves are shame. Right. So toxic shame can subsume identity. Right. One can just be feeling like 
I am shame. There is something intrinsically shameful about me. There's something wrong or bad about not me. Not right, not lovable, People not love worthy. People love me, absolutely. And that's the individual that moves through the world pretending mm -hmm. that everything is great as a defense because they're really their core belief is right. if you actually find out who I really am, you'll, you'll, you'll think I'm horrible. You'll see the ugly truth of me. You'll reject me. And rejection is the number one fear of shame-based people. That then becomes identity. That and that's how people move that's right. through the world. That's correct. And you cannot really confront that by saying, that's not true, you're great. <laughs> right. You have to literally regroove neural patterning, in my opinion. That's correct. And so in my clinical practice, what I tell my patients is, this is reality right here. And right here are your unrealistic expectations of self and others, okay? Now, you can't bring reality to your unrealistic expectations. So you have to uh, reduce your unrealistic expectations to reality. That's the work of therapy. That's what therapy is all about. Because that gap is frustration, depression, guilt, all Addiction, of that. Addiction, all of it. All, it's all of it. Mm -hmm. So we have to bring the unrealistic expectations to reality so they meet. I um, use an example when I talk about grooving new neural patterning. If, may I? May I? No. I would like to share no, it with you. No, you can't. <laughs> of course you can. Oh, there must be something wrong with me. I'm so ashamed I asked. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so uh, here's what I use to uh, sort of illustrate how I see grooving new neural patterning. Yeah. So imagine, if you will, that your house backs up to a somewhat overgrown field. And on the other side of the field is your school. And every day you walk out of the back door of your house through the field to your school and home the same way. Over time, you groove a pretty well-worn pathway mm -hmm. from your back door to school. And Jerry comes along, or I come along, and we say, well, you know, you can't use that pathway anymore. It's no good for you. And then you say to us, well, it's a completely overgrown field. This is the only path that there is. How am I supposed to get to my school? And we say, well, we're going to show you. And we take our machetes, and initially you're with us, and we bushwhack our way through another part of the field to the back of the school. And over time, with our help, as therapists and psychologists, we are showing you how it is to groove a new pathway through an overgrown field. And by the time that new pathway is well-grooved and well-worn, the old pathway is now overgrown. That's literally how I talk about grooving new neurology, which sometimes can be as simple as parting your hair on the other side, as simple as doing things in a reverse order. Right. Because the best part of the brain is its neuroplasticity, meaning its capacity to readjust, re-engage, and respond differently to external stimuli. In my work, I want people to develop a different set of pattern responses. I think what you're saying is shame-based people do not take risks. They're not risk, like they're risk avoidant, Very much. risk aversive. And so they live in their confined world. I like that a lot. Yeah. And when that confined world starts to become unbearable, they'll often turn to substances. They often a, do. You know, as a way to simply tolerate what really feels intolerable. But it's not only that. Substances, the warmth of alcohol and drugs, mimic the effects of oxytocin, yes, which we talked do. about yes, they earlier. Do. They mimic the effects of the bonding. And, but what happens over time with the alcohol and drugs is that they develop a, a not only the dependency, but they, they develop uh, the, uh, the, the problem of not getting the same buzz. So they're constantly chasing the buzz. And always left feeling unsatisfied. And, and empty and alone. Yes. And that their, whatever their behaviors are to get out of it, keep them in the same wounded state.
Do you, when you do, you're doing your work, yes. do you bring in this notion of, let's say, the God in you, the source consciousness in you, that higher self, that place of spiritual connection? Not really, because a lot of my patients who have toxic shame, and especially alcoholics who are going through 12-step, have difficulty with their uh, spiritual, the spiritual or the God thing. And so that, th that whole concept I try to avoid especially when it comes to spirituality or God or some, uh, something of that nature because they're afraid of it. They don't know it. Remember, you have to be out of yourself to experience a higher order or a higher power. Well, you know how in AA, because I do a lot of work with people that are in AA so do I. and all yeah. that, right? Right. So there's always this notion of, you know, your higher power. Your higher power. And the reason I'm asking you this question is that is the one place in all of recovery that people seem to struggle the most. I, absolutely. And it's, 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 it's one of the areas where people drop out of AA because they can't they do that step. They can't get the concept, step. right? They, they can't, don't, they do can't that get their step. head around it, right? Yeah. They're not capable. So I have a plant that my wife bought me. 20 years ago when I opened up this my current office and that plant has thrived and it's wonderful so my when these folks come in and I say this is this could be your spirituality this could be your God thing because it's growing and it's free to grow and it's been growing for years all you have to do is water it Mm -hmm. All you have to do is give it some sunlight, some vitamin D, and it will flourish. But that's the same as with ourselves. You've got to give yourself some sunlight. You've got to let the rays come in. And you have to nurture it. You have to protect it. And that's like God because what I say in my office is this, very simply, we're all God. We're all a representation of God. And that we have to protect ourselves because we're, we're taking care of ourselves in a healthy way. Period. I don't attach the word or the concept of God to a religious... Oh, no. Uh, uh, no, set of principles no, at all because not. that muddies the water. I don't even use the word God. Huh? I said I don't even use that word. Yeah. But you know what I use? I do talk about it a little bit. And I want to just share with you what that is. I want to share with you what that is. Gosh. Yeah, look at I all struggle. the people we're sharing with. <laughs> so this is what I do. Yeah. I talk about raising the vibe. Oh. That's actually okay. how I present it. And that's sort of what I wanted to open sure. up with you, which is not God, not religion, nothing like that. But simply when a client comes in and they are living in shame, and they are living a, a trauma-infused existence. And all of these traumatic events, all the traumas, the stories, beliefs, I see people are living hundreds, if not thousands of them. So I'm seeing what I refer to the walking wounded. This is the wound. They're living in the trauma wound itself because they are moving through the world from a series of beliefs, not their truths. Right. Okay. So that's a pretty, if you're in the wounded place, the vibration of that is pretty low, not very evolved. So part of what I do, this thing that I do that's kind of hand in hand, is I just talk about what would it take to raise the vibrational frequency? What would it take? What would make you actually feel better? You feel bad. What could you do that would make you feel better? Okay, well, I'm feeling badly, but if I listen to this piece of music, that always makes me feel better. Why wouldn't you listen to that piece of music? I didn't think of it. Why not? Oh, I guess because I didn't think that I deserved it. I didn't think that I was worthy oh. of it. I didn't think that, you know, this would help me. Absolutely. Why wouldn't it help you? You just told me that it makes you feel better. So this is actually, I, I do this thing called unwinding. Mm -hmm. And that's how I use this notion of a higher frequency or vibrational frequency or, you know, raising the spiritual awareness, so to speak. Nothing with religion, nothing with God. That never works and it's not my place. However, to raise the vibe means that a person is willing to unwind from mm -hmm. this stuck pattern, yeah. trauma, story, belief. And I work back to front 
what was the trauma, what's the story that was built around it, what's the limiting belief as the result, and I also work front to back. And I actually have found that doing this back to front, front to back, back to front, mm -hmm. front to back, that actually starts something moving. That actually is the real beginning of unwinding. And I used to call it unspooling. And I had a great day in my office where a very traumatized client, many years of uh, childhood incest and so forth, I was working with her. It was a brilliant, brilliant case of brilliant work. That client came into my office and she was wearing a uh, spool of thread around her neck. And it was, you know, it was empty. It didn't have any more thread sure. on it. I said, what, do you have a, are you wearing a, a thread spool around your neck? She said, yes, because we're unspooling. Fabulous. It made me happy. Yeah, of course it did. All right, I want to wind up with, we talked a bit at the beginning about shame and guilt. Yes. And I want to get your take on that because there is a huge differentiation. Again, you, should, you cannot use coterminously the term shame and guilt. You cannot. Because can, they're not the same. Different well, part of the brain. Guilt is kind of public and shame is really personal. Yeah, shame is personal. And guilt kind of isn't. Guilt yeah. is really failing to meet the expectations of others. So, it, it, you know, in my world, Shame, uh, shame is, uh, no, well, let's start with guilt. Guilt says I did something wrong and, and I did something bad. But shame says- I am bad. I am bad. And I am wrong. And I am wrong. Yeah, intrinsically so. Yeah. Just because that's the blood that pumps through my system. It's bad blood. It's right. shame blood. I talk about guilt in this way. I talk about how it's easy for people to feel guilty if they allow other people to define what is expected of them. Or who they are who they are and what's expected of them. Classic example, a pretty uh, guilt-infused family, maybe multi-generations of that, right. not very much individuation. Yeah. Adult child is still somewhat courted to parents for right. parental approval, unable right. to completely be self-sustaining right. and, and individuated. And so this is a child, then an adult child, who gets an opportunity from California to move to New York, great job opportunity. Right. And the father says, how could you do that to your mother? And the mother says, I can't believe you're leaving. You're our only child. What are we going to do? Why would you ever leave us? That's so selfish. Okay. And then this adult child starts to feel very, very guilty. Why? Because they, are, as an adult, are still courted, connected to the parent for parental approval. And they feel as if the parents are right in holding them to a certain set of expectations. And I don't believe that. I believe that all of us have to develop our own set of expectations about ourselves. And we can't do it if we remain courted in adulthood to our parents. So we have to individuate, separate, and differentiate. And what that actually means to really cut the cord is we have to take the individual through the process of mm -hmm. what is the fear that comes up? Right. What would happen? And it usually always tracks back, maybe it always tracks back to early childhood. If I'm disconnected from mom, mm -hmm. I'll die. If I'm right. disconnected to primary object, I'll die. Mm -hmm. And that iterates through and shows up in this place of guilt. I feel so guilty, I let my mother down. It's a 35 year old adult. They're entitled to move to New but, York City. But as we've talked about, they're really not 35 in their head, are they? Because they go younger. Can we talk about that? I don't know if we have time. We're going to, we have time. That's okay. so critically important. It's critically Before important. Before we wrap up, because I was going to say, why don't we... I really want, I, to, I want you to wrap up your most important right now. Not oh, that I don't even know what my most important well, is. Well, I think this important. is really important. But I want to talk about going younger. Oh, yes, Go thank you. It. This is the everything. This is a big piece of the everything. It's all okay. the everything, but I love this. So John Bradshaw, shout out to you. Thank you so much for your work on early childhood development and the internal timeline, because I use this daily in my work with people. Right. 
internal timeline, we have this 35-year-old guilty client. And for all of us, we'll come back to that person, but for all of us, between zero and whatever chronological age we are now, we've all had a series of traumatic events, big trauma, little trauma, and all kinds of traumas in between. We had one at three, we had one at seven, we had one at nine, we had one at 12, 15, 30, you know, 20, 30, so on. So wherever trauma is unresolved, we are holding that someplace inside of ourselves. We might say it's like a trauma fragment. Okay, so under certain external stressors that activate feelings that we had when the original trauma itself took place, we slide younger on our own internal timeline, it is unconscious, and then we respond to the world from whatever younger age we were when that feeling was first activated through an external trauma that occurred. Or it's a personal trauma, but it occurred in the external world. They're okay. fixated. Yes, thank you. So here's an example of that very quickly. I was working with a 65-year-old woman. She was partnered with this man for 12 years. She had no safety valves in place. They hadn't signed any agreements. Mm -hmm. What if he leaves me? Nothing's in place. Right. She's very frightened about money. What's she going to do with the rest of her life? She's 65. He's leaving her for a younger woman, so she's pretty activated. Mm -hmm. She came into my office one day, and she looked terrible. And I said, oh, my goodness, you look terrible. What just happened? She said, well, the guy and I just had an awful fight. I said, oh, my goodness. Well, what occurred? She said, really? I just want to go into my closet, close the door, sit on the floor, and cry. A very unusual response for an adult 65-year-old. So I said to her right in that moment, how old are you? And she said, I'm three. And I said, what happened at three? And at three, she was able to tell me of a really horrific public shaming that occurred. That was, it, she had nothing to do with it. It was all of the adults around right. her that held her to an unrealistic right. expectation. And something was activated in her that morning in that fight with this soon-to-be ex-partner and it activated an internal feeling that took her out of her chronology of 65 back to three. And when that happens, the three-year-old is three. So that in that 65-year-old body, that person is responding to the world from a three-year-old place. They have lost all capacity to grab onto whatever abilities they have at 65. Absolutely, and that is so critical to understand, and I see that daily with, with a lot slide. of my patients People slide, they're constantly coming. sliding. Kind of, they slide because it's all they know. So we they wanna consolidate, that. we wanna heal those traumas and we wanna integrate them and consolidate them. So that they can move past it. So that they can be their chronology. Absolutely. Well, oh, are you Sophia, tired? no, this is <laughs> wonderful. It's a great ride. Sophia, I can't thank you enough for being here today. I'm, I am exhilarated by, by what we talked about, and I think our, our viewers are going to experience and express uh, what you have told them in a very positive way. And at the end of the show, we're going to flash all of your uh, contact information on because Great. you're close by, people can get in touch with you and they can maybe check out some things with you or you know develop uh, your further your your clinical practice which I know is a 12 hour day anyway. Mm -hmm. So thank you again for being here and I look forward to uh, seeing you again on my show. I'm really excited. I had a great time. Thank, thank you, you so much for having thank me. It was you. a lot of fun. Thank you all. So I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin thanking you all for being here today for being a part of my show and I hope we've been able to give you information that was meaningful and helpful in your own, if it's recovery or psychological or personal growth. This has been a very important uh, uh, interview and a very important show for me. So until next time, uh, you can see me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, 
reach me through Dr. Jerry at drgeraldfishkin.com, and that's Dr. Jerry with a G, and it's DR. And we'll flash all that at the end of the show, including all of Sophia's contact information. So again, until the next episode of the Dr. Jerry Fishkin Show, I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin, wishing you love, hugs, and all my compassionate guests. See you next time. 